Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson, and me, Danny Howard. In every episode, we're going to be turning back the clock and looking at some of the worst murder cases in history. In this episode, we're looking into master manipulator Jack Intervega. Danny, how are you today? What have you been up to? I'm so tired. Why? My husband and I went for a cabin in the woods for the weekend. Mm-hmm. And a um, lovely relaxing trip. Mm-hmm. And no, I've made it, it wasn't, that's not why I'm tired. Mm. Like, it's not gross. It's just, I don't know if you've ever tried to relax in the woods, but a lot of, just a lot goes on. Like what? Well, I grew up in the city. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm just not used to it, but like, picture this, I'm in the hot tub and the stars are out. I've got a wine in my hand and I'm like, oh yeah, zen. And the hot tub's like, (laughs) I'm in a lovely time. And I get out and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm ready for bed now. I'm so relaxed. I'm in bed and there's crickets or whatever, like normal, you know, the wind rustling through the trees. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so relaxed. And then all I hear is, Ah! <laughs> and I don't know what the fuck kind of animal makes that noise. I think it might be a deer. Or what are they doing? It's like some horny deer. <laughs> like all fucking night. And then there's owls. <laughs> and I just got no sleep the whole time I was there. <laughs> you actually put me in a state of relaxation. Just yeah, so right? Like your, your voice was sounding so good. Yeah. <laughs> No. So I feel that you took me in time, back in time with you. I'm stressed. Oh. <laughs> Did you have but a nice yeah. time though? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was fine. Quality time together. All the nature, oh. a bit much. But yeah, apart from that, and, you know, did some walking. Mm. Lovely. Have you been to Austria? No. You have haven't? You? I don't know. What? Did we went... do snow bombing? Yeah, that was Valterenz, but we flew into Geneva. No, I went interrailing and I went to a place called Gamunden in Austria, which is like a beautiful lakeside village. And that was my tranquil time because we did a load of cities and then we went down to oh. Gamunden and it was gorgeous. Um, I just forget. I don't know about you, but I just forget parts of my life. Like, I'm not so <laughs> jet set. I don't forgot where I no, but, but I don't want to sound like a stalker, but didn't you meet Mr. Motivator in Austria? No. Was that not you? No. Uh, you have met Mr. Motivator. Was that you? No. <laughs> it wasn't you. Did you dream that? No, I know somebody who met Mr. Motivator I and I'm pretty sure it was in Austria. Mm, well, I don't remember that. Oh. They don't, I might have done. There's so many like blank spaces in my brain. Can you please meet Mr. Motivator? I'll tweet him. I watched him turn on Croydon Christmas lights in 1994. <laughs> <laughs> that was as close as I got. <laughs> I only asked you this question. Because, well, if I go again, I really hope that their law enforcement has improved. Okay. Uh, Only because uh, I don't have much faith in their reformed offenders. Right, okay. Right. I can see where this is going. They say that they were just too trusting. Okay. Too trusting? They're just too trusting. They're the police! Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. But I think they probably learned from their mistakes and so let's hope that there's been an improvement. Well, I'm intrigued. Tell mm-hmm. me. Okay. Ready? Ready. It's May 1990 in Austria and a convicted murderer has just been released from prison early, having served just under 14 years of his life sentence. A man called Jack Unterweger. A brutal killer who is now going to embark on what I think is one of the most horrifying killing sprees in modern European history. Oh. I agree with him. Okay. Jack Unterweger, he was like the ultimate manipulator. Uh, I, I actually think he was part wizard. Right, okay. Because so he's he, Lord Voldemort. No, he was Jafar with the stick. Okay. He managed to... You know, oh. so he lit because he lived a double life. He was a famous writer, but also a serial killer. Classic combo. Once he was released from prison, he went on to kill nine women and was suspected of two others in just one year. 
He possessed what one calls the charm of a psychopath. The style was completely different. It was absolute brutality and bursts of violence. Do they speak German in Austria? Mm-hmm. Every day, school day. Do you know what they also do in Austria? They put bread on your table <laughs> and they don't tell you that it's not free. <laughs> so I got charged for a basket of bread. Are you sure that was Austria? Because you didn't even remember you went to No, you know what? I get reminded of these things that I do and then it floods back like someone's pulled a cork out and it's just spilling all the wine. That's what happens in my brain. There are all these little corks of memories and I just... Bread. Anyway, <laughs> so in public, he was a poster boy. He was pretty good looking. Everyone idolised him. They thought he was great. He transformed himself from a murderer into a model citizen and a celebrated writer. But little did his fans know that Jack was leading a double life. So we always like to go back in time to where it started just to get a bit of backstory and context. So Jack, he was born in 1950 in Udenburg in Styria, which is in southern Austria. And he was the because uh, he was the bastard son. <laughs> illegitimate. Uh, illegitimate. That's what I wanted to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Please call him the bastard. He's the bastard son. <laughs> John Snow. Uh, of a waitress and an American soldier. But he didn't ever meet his dad because he buggered off. That's what they do. They just swooped in, impregnated a load of European ladies and buggered back. That is actually history. No, it is. That's what my great auntie Jean was. Oh, okay. She had a hunchback. (laughs) (laughs) Terrified me as a child. His mum would spend a lot of time in and out of jail and she was an alcoholic. So he got put into the care of his granddad, who... And according to Jack, he, he his his childhood wasn't ideal because his, let's put it this way, Jack's granddad was a naughty old boy. He wasn't that kind of wholesome image of nurturing grandfatherness. His granddad would actually bring home prostitutes, have his dirty, wicked way with them. Uh, he got up to all sorts. He was also an alcoholic and all whilst under the same roof as little Jack. So he was exposed to this behaviour from a young age and he ended up going to live with other family members but that didn't work out so he got put into the care system. So yeah, that wasn't the most wholesome upbringing that you'd expect living with your dear old granddad. This is criminologist Liz Yardley. She's got the scoop. He didn't form those attachments with his caregivers, those consistent attachments that provide that secure environment in which children can grow up and feel safe and develop a child in this kind of situation, they become very, very focused on their own survival. He almost inevitably fell into this criminal role and showed this type of behaviour from a very early age. He failed in his compulsory education and he displayed delinquent behaviour in his youth. That was Dr Reinhard Haller. So in 1974, Jack's now 24, and he decided to act on his desires. He was travelling with his girlfriend through Germany and they drove past one of her friends. So normally when you bump into someone that you know, you might just ask them how they've been, arranged to potentially go for a pint or have a general catch-up. They ended up robbing her. Oh. And then he killed her. Right. So he sees an opportunity here. He sees this woman walking who his girlfriend knows. There's an opportunity there for, for him to have control over somebody, to manipulate them and to do what he wants with them. I just don't understand why. I guess that, that just shows his upbringing to be looking for those opportunities. Just seems a bit but, I mean, also, out of like, the blue and a bit odd, doesn't it? Why just, kill her? It didn't stop there. And just to warn you, it does get pretty rough. OK. Mm-hmm. This was a highly sadistic murder in which he abducted this girl who was walking home on an extremely cold winter's night. He drove her naked through the forest with a steel rod in his hand, taking great delight in her impending death from exposure, but ultimately strangled her with her bra. It was an incredibly vicious and incredibly sadistic moment. So not only did he kill her, 
he took actually quite a lot of joy in doing it in uh he tortured her if tor- yeah oh she must i just I'm, oh must have really sucked yeah i just feel horrible for her like to just know and then with your own bra literally the worst piece of clothing that's ever been invented mm-hmm. in a way we're all being strangled by our bras mm-hmm. but she oh, actually strangled by the bra and she's oh. already naked and, and humiliated so he, and freezing cold he's been carrying that bra to strangle her with not alright it wasn't long until police found Margaret's body and they started asking questions. So they interrogated the girlfriend at the time and she confessed that he had killed her friend. So once caught by the police, Jack also, he immediately confessed to the murder, claiming he'd acted in a fit of rage. So on June 1st, 1976, just before his 26th birthday, Jack began a life sentence for the murder, but this was only the beginning of his story. Our friend Jeff Wansall, true crime author, he knows more. From being what could only be described as a low-life, uneducated brute capable of killing an 18-year-old, he suddenly becomes a changed man. He teaches himself to read and write properly, and he begins a very adventurous career as a writer. In fact, writes not one but two bestsellers. He is very much the model prisoner. Now that he can read and write, he spent a lot of time in the library and um, he, he was pretty uneducated up to this point, but he couldn't get enough of books. One day in the library, he came across a book by an author completely unknown to him, and he says to himself, quite narcissistically, what he can do, I can do too. And then he began to write stories, and paradoxically, he wrote, among other things, these episodes for a radio programme which was very popular among children and families back then. It was called the bedtime programme for little ones, The Little Sandman is Coming. This was such a very idyllic, lovely, comforting, soporific programme, which I also listened to as a child. I did not see that coming. I'm, I'm intrigued to know what um, children's TV radio shows were like back then. Well, it was called The Sandman is Coming. That's terrifying. (laughs) So obviously it was written by a guy who murdered somebody because it was terrifying. But But apparently it was idyllic, lovely, comforting and... um, which it sounds the complete opposite of. I think that makes makes him even more frightening, to be honest. Because if he's obviously got that capacity to pretend or at least come across... This is it, though. Like... This is what works to his advantage. Lovely. That's really frightening. Um, and also, oh, like, I thought, I'm not a parent, so I don't really know how I feel about it. But, like, if you've got this thing that your child loves and is, like, learning from or whatever, and then you find out that it's written by a guy who killed someone, mm. um, is it okay still okay? No. But how, how do you know that, like... What's being written into it? Is it like subliminal? Well, like if you play it backwards, it's going to tell you to worship yeah. the devil. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe it is. Maybe, uh, I don't know. He's obviously smart, though. There's just something so sinister about this whole scenario. I thought that he was going to be like, and ironically, he wrote true cr- he wrote crime novels and they were bestsellers. And I was like, well, that I can understand. Mm-hmm. Like, and once again, it's like Ed Gein's chair all over again. I mean, yeah, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to read it. But I don't want to support him in any way. But I would probably read this guy, Undervegas. I would read his crime novel because, you know, it's probably going to be pretty good. And that's probably why, perhaps, he was successful. I mean, we'll we'll hear more on his success. But, you know, that, that morbid fascination that people have in true crime and murder scenes and people go, like Ed Gein, they want to go to where he lived to mm. see it. Maybe that's what, all part of it. Like, I want to read the words of a killer. 
unbelievably, Jack ended up becoming famous as the man who wrote children's stories, poetry and prose about life in prison. What? <laughs> and he has an autobiography, which is called Figafoya, which means purgatory. And it became a bestseller and even got a film adaptation. Journalist Paul Yvonne and Dr. Haller have some thoughts about why the public were so attracted to Jack's story. Unterweger suddenly attracted the attention of the media. People showed support for his release. These were people, some of whom were very well known, like journalists and artists, who showed their support for good reasons. Let's say they had good intention. The intellectuals said, wonderful, finally we have a criminal who reformed himself, who, as it were, confessed to his actions through his writing and processed them therapeutically. Such a person can only be a good person. And they fell for him. They really fell for him. I guess it's like I said before, if you... If he's now writing children's, he's writing children's books mm-hmm. and stuff, you'd be like, this is a guy who made a mistake and brutally tortured and murdered somebody, but now he's changed his ways. He's reformed. He's mm-hmm. doing. He's putting good out into the world now. Here's his second chance. I would have to say, though, you know, like with an apology, if you say sorry and then do it again, it's not an apology. So... All he's doing is writing, but he's still stuck behind bars. You only know if someone's actually sorry or is reformed when they have the opportunity to act badly again. Like, he can't go out and torture and murder someone because he's stuck behind bars. And I think that they naively, like, fell for it. Like, as soon as he's out, who's to say that he's not going to go out and do it? Do you know what I mean? I think that it's pretty stupid of them to be like oh he's writing all these really nice poems and he's so sorry and therapeutic like you can write anything in a fucking book that's how stories are made so at this point Austria was in the middle of trying to reform its prison system Jack's newly found literary prowess was just what the reformers needed to prove the new system could be a success so the calls for Jack's early release flooded in And scholars, writers, artists, journalists, all fans of Jack's work, even politicians, they campaigned for Jack to be freed. Now there was unbelievable pressure for his release at all costs. And that's what finally happened. However, there were voices who warned that hiding behind this charming and manipulative man is a very dangerous, malicious narcissist. So despite the warnings of he might write well and seem nice, but behind that is a dangerous guy, um, he was released on May 23rd in 1990. So he was now 39 years old and he only ended up serving 14 years of his life sentence. Dr. Haller and Jeff know exactly what happened next. Man hat ihn tatsächlich entlassen, ohne jegliches... He was actually released without any safeguards. That means he did not even have to go to see his probation officer or to a psychiatrist where he would have been treated further. He was completely free. A brutal killer who is now going to embark on what I think is one of the most horrifying killing sprees in modern European history. (laughs) 14 years of a life sentence... Free, free as a bee. They literally gave him his bag and his coat and they said, there's a door, see you later. Bye, mate, well done. Yeah. That poor girl's family, like, his victim, Mm -hmm. you'd just be furious. I would be following him everywhere he goes. Mm -hmm. Everything he did, I would be on it like a fly on shit. You can thank the artistic community for this because they campaigned for it because they loved his writing so much. They were just like, free him, he's great. So he moved to Vienna where he mingled with loads of rich people, the famous, and he was known as the model rehabilitated prisoner. So he was was living his life. He was up there with all the 
so socialites. He's, he's famous now. He's yeah. He's like, like he's, he's well known. He's famous for not for the writing. Well, he's famous for writing. Yeah, but he's more famous for being an ex-con. Yeah, well, he's like, so he's a famous writer, but a celebrated, rehabilitated prisoner. So look at this guy. He turned, he did a 180. He's so good now. Look oh, how great he is. I see. So it yeah. can be like, look how good our prison system is. Yeah, we totally reformed this guy. Right. Okay. He is converted. Okay. We put him in one end, he came out the other like this. A political tool. Yeah. Author and former criminal psychologist uh, Chris Carter figures that the prison reformers were more willing to believe their system had worked and turn a blind eye to Jack than acknowledge that maybe the system wasn't perfect. Obviously, the people who ran the prison wanted to advocate in their favor because it's a great advertisement. They see, the system works. We can put somebody who is as bad and as evil as a psychopath who kills somebody in cold blood. And this psychopath has rehabilitated in 15 years. He is now a writer, a person who is known by the people in Austria. So he was the success story of the criminal justice system. And I think we got too carried away with that and lost sight of the fact that this was an individual who had harmed someone else, who had taken someone else's life, and that wasn't something that had been addressed. So, of course, he was going to do it again. So he's out, and he became a celebrity, and he he appeared on television, news programmes, radio. He drove around in a nice white Mustang. He wore lovely clothes. He was well-groomed. He was incredibly vain and narcissistic. He read his poetry to adoring fans, mostly women. Ooh, poems. And in 1990, he even joined a panel with journalist Paul Yvonne to discuss prison reform. He was invited as basically an expert to report on his experiences in the penitentiary. He happened to sit next to me in this club. He appeared in a white suit. As far as I can remember, he had a bright red carnation, I think, in the buttonhole. The normal reaction of a journalist is curiosity and interest. What kind of guy? What kind of person is he? It's very easy for Unterweger to lead a double life because he can very effectively compartmentalise parts of his life and his existence. He's a very accomplished actor at this point. He's playing this role of the reformed criminal, of the man who's changed, and he's absolutely loving the spotlight that comes along with it. So he wants that, that narcissistic element of him wants that continued attention and this adoration. He also showed up in various bars where he always picked up women. What's really impressive is the incredible number of women he had made contact with. I believe he did not spend one night alone and very few nights with the same woman. So not only is he a psychopath, he's a player. Mm-hmm. So despite his re-entering into society, seeming access to the outside world... Jack's dark desires remained. So I'd say once a cheater, always a cheater. And in this case, once a killer, always a killer. A lot of people will come out of prison, they don't even have a job and they'll have to struggle probably for the rest of their lives. But he came out and he had money, he had a job, he already had a career pretty much set up. So he had all the opportunity. But the problem with killers is that they can't curb the urge. He is a man who's positively bursting with self-importance and vanity. But he is also the same man who was cruel, manipulative and violent towards women from the age of 16 onwards. Nothing has changed. Only this time, he chooses his targets carefully. So in 1990, in September, just four months after he's let loose, free from prison to do what the hell he wants to do, he killed again. He travelled to kill his next victim. He went over to Prague and his second victim was a 29-year-old shop assistant called Blanka Bokova. Her body was found in the banks of the Vitava River, which is the river running through Prague, and she was lying on her back with her legs spread open and covered in twigs and leaves. She had been strangled with a pair of stockings, um, so not particularly dignified for her at all. Oh, and she was naked as well. 
It's just really disrespectful, isn't it? Mm. Like, I know it's disrespectful to kill someone anyway, but then, like... Um, so I learned this. I've been watching a lot of Criminal Minds, mm-hmm. and um, which is obviously very accurate, um, a show, and not purely dramatised for TV. <laughs> um, but I learned this. The thing they always say is that if by posing their victims at like after the act, it shows a sort of a level of care, or sometimes it shows remorse for what they're doing. Like it, then that whole like sending them off peacefully thing but to just like leave them there naked legs akimbo whatever or show then shows like a complete disregard for what they've done a complete like sort of disconnection for what they've done they don't see it as bad Mm. and uh, not that it would even if they pose it you know it doesn't it's not that that makes it better but this is another annoying one like it's just annoying stop it stop doing that Stop being, it's rude. Stop it. After Blanca's murder in Prague, he continues this time but killing three women very quickly, one after the other. First, the body of Brunhilde Massa. She was found naked in a forest near Graz in Austria, nearly three months after she disappeared. So there, it's a while before these ladies are being found. And then in December 1990, Hida Hammer was killed in a forest near Lusten now, close to the German border. Both women had been beaten and strangled with their own tights. And then in March 1991, Elfrieda Schrempf, she disappeared near Graz and her body wasn't found until seven months later. Three, one after the other. It is a long time for a body to lay there hidden, probably naked in, in the outdoors. Forensic pathologist Dr Stuart Hamilton and criminologist Dr Elizabeth Yardley explain how the decomposition of the bodies was affected based on where Jack had left them. We're looking at somebody who strangled his victims but then disposed of the bodies in the open air in forests and it was often a long time, weeks or months, before they were discovered. Obviously, the decomposition process, the fact that animals have access to those bodies, will damage them. It will limit what the pathologist can say. But quite often, the body is much better preserved than necessarily you would think at first glance. And quite often, at least some information can be gleaned. If there was, say, bruising in the tissues of the neck from a strangulation, it would still be relatively identifiable. In some cases, we can never say what happened In others, the evidence can still remain quite strong for prolonged periods. When we look at the murders he commits after he's left prison, they are much more meticulously planned. The first murder was very much an opportunity which he took advantage of, and the the circumstances around that left an awful lot of evidence behind. There was a witness, so of course he was going to be convicted for that. So when he comes out, he's sure he's not going to make those same mistakes again, and he's very careful, he plans, he's incredibly organised. So it's almost like prison gave him the time to learn how to do it properly. Maybe think about it. Yeah. And what, so where he went wrong last time. Work out how he really wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Rather than just being out there learning on the job. Which was sickening, pop- isn't it? It's really bad. Um, it's worse because it could have been prevented. Mm-hmm. Little is known about where exactly the women died and what happened to them before they were murdered. So all we know is that Jack picked them up in his car and presumably drove them to an isolated area in a forest in his Mustang. If someone asked to take me for a ride in a Mustang, I probably would say yes as well. Well, that's what I was just thinking. So how good looking does, or how many puppies does a guy have to have Mm -hmm. to make you get in his car? I saw a picture of Jack and they were saying all about how dashing he was and how charming he was and I don't think he was that much of a looker and when I watched the documentary about this the guy that they used um, to do the real life replay he was a lot fitter than the actual the real life Jack <laughs> Savage. and I, was, I thought to myself well if he picked me up in his Mustang I probably would agree to it so the police had no leads to follow up Jack uh, until Jack attacked again but this time his plan failed. Dr. Reinhard Haller explains how we do know some of what was done to the victims. 
Allerdings wissen wir doch einiges. We do know a few things because one of his victims survived. And from this evidence, it is quite clear that sexual acts were involved too. But in my opinion, these were not of prime importance. Of prime importance was the sadism, that he wanted to torture the women, that he wanted to exercise power under all circumstances. Why do... Uh, how has he just not gone straight back to jail already? Well, because he's good at hiding them. Mm. Is it worse to have survived at that stage? Perhaps. Because you then have to live with what's happened to you. Mm -hmm. That's got to be a hell of a thing to recover from. Yeah, exactly. Like, my God. So it's March 1991 and Jack is living their life in Vienna. He's like coffee culture society. He's just high up there, as you can imagine, just... And at this point, socialite. Is he still? People just love him. Yeah, still. they just love him. They think he's great, and he's just he's a, he's he's charming. He's wealthy. He's an influential poet. He's everything. That he is a celebrity. He can't do any wrong, and he was really a really charming man. Wrapped people around his finger. But he oh. is living a double life. They just have no idea what he's getting up to in his spare time. So since leaving prison, Jack has killed at least four women by now and no one suspected a thing. Now, up to this point, he had travelled to commit the murders, but maybe growing a bit more cocky, he turned his attention closer to home, killing sex workers in Vienna. And a new reporter was on the scene, claiming to be working on the behalf of Austrian public broadcaster ORF, saying he was reporting the unusual disappearances of these sex workers And you're never going to guess who it was. Who? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. So not only was he killing these sex workers, he was covering up his own tracks by pretending to be a journalist covering the story of them. Oh, my yes. God. I bet he loved it as Isn't well. It? You know that he was just like, yeah, I'm doing fucking great at this. That is the ultimate... Arrogance. Uh. In Austria, there are 0.5 to 0.7 killings of prostitutes per year. And now, suddenly, there were seven or eight cases within a year. This was conspicuous. And then the top crime detective got a visit from a reporter named Jack Unterweger, who was equipped with a microphone, and asked him, There are so many prostitutes being killed in Austria, the population is worried. That's a scandal. Why have the police not been more successful? And during one of these live interviews, this official told him, yes, we're checking up on all sexual murderers, including you. And he's loving every minute of this because he knows that he's the one behind the murders that he's talking about. And psychopaths enjoy playing with people. They enjoy kind of pressing their buttons and having a bit of fun and knowing that they're the ones who've got this knowledge that other people don't. So he's essentially, he's having a good time. This is amusing for him. He's getting a lot of gratification out of it. Bold move though, isn't it? It is bold. And it also gave him a reason to keep going back to the red light district. Yeah. So he could interview other sex workers. Apparently his white Ford Mustang, the license plate read W Jack 1, and that's how he was spotted like being there all the time because it was just so obnoxious and just there. Vienna did have Jack on their list of possible suspects, but they didn't have any hard evidence. Jack often had an alibi for the days on which the crimes happened. He'd either been into a reading or given a radio interview or been uh, with a girlfriend. Now, not everyone is completely convinced by Ontovega. Certainly one police officer is beginning to see similarities with the crime that he was eventually convicted for the killing of the 18-year-old with a steel rod. In fact, that police officer also suspected he may have killed once before. But those odd suspicions do not affect his celebrity in Vienna. Indeed, he's so celebrated and so brazen, he gets commissioned to go to Los Angeles to write a piece about prostitution. So now he's being paid mm -hmm. to go find some other... You know what? Cast your line somewhere else, my friend. Go, be free, like, kill some more people. Take over the world. 
You've got to be smart with that, though, because surely he goes there to interview other prostitutes and they start to go missing. Somebody has to connect the dots here. Yeah. Well, we're about to find out. So in 1991, he travels to the US and he stays in the former Cecil Hotel in downtown LA, which is the the one for the documentary. Yeah. So bad shit happens in that place. Bad shit does happen. Yeah. That's it right there. That's the biggest red flag of all. He stayed in the murderer's hotel. (laughs) Right? Within a few weeks of landing, he'd already killed three women in Los Angeles, all of them sex workers. So he didn't hang about. All three murders were meticulously planned in advance. His first LA victim was Shannon Exley, a sex worker allegedly popular with truckers. Just nine, I wonder why. Just nine days later, he killed again Irene Rodriguez, originally from Texas. And five days after that, he killed Sherry Ann Long, who, according to the LA Times, uh, also went by the name um, Peggy Jean Booth. She was later found in the hills of Malibu. All three women were strangled with a bra using the very same distinct knot. So that was it his signature knot which was his downfall some people use a certain method for example with strangulation that would be the mo the motors operandi but if they use the strangulation with a cord then the cord would be the signature in his case i don't think he used the bra of the girls a lot of the time but he did a specific knot. I don't think he did the knot because um, Montevega wanted people to know it was him he did the knot because he knew the knot worked and it's the same thing that it happens with so many serial killers. They use a method or a signature because they know it works. It wasn't like uh, Jack was here. You know, it wasn't like a tag, like a symbol. You know how sometimes of murders, they, they leave a trace behind so people know it's them. Oh, yeah, like, like a symbol. Like a symbol. He was right. just a bit... That, that was where he was careless. He used something that he knew worked, but because it was so methodical You've and repetitive... That's where they linked it all together. So he left LA and returned home to Vienna before detectives could link him to the murders. But whilst he was away, the police in Vienna, they began working closely with their counterparts in Graz. They realised that the murders were in fact linked. A pattern started emerging. And what with Jack being free? <laughs> Who'd have thought? Uh, and and around the time that the murders were committed, so they obviously were like, "Hang on a minute, we just let a serial killer loose, and s- people are dying again." So maybe it's that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine the meeting, guys? Has anybody anybody thought about Jack? And they're like, "Nah, he's well good. Look at him. He's done all the kids, but you can't." Do you remember, they did do that murder though? Yeah, but the books uh, that that murder. Do you remember that, though? It was quite a bad one. Like, oh, but he did write all those But it, it can't be... Nah, nah, it's probably not him. Probably not him. Probably... Probably not him. He's just like, gone to LA, funny enough. That's so weird. It's probably not him, though, because he did do those books. So... <laughs> and he drives that nice car. So it's probably not... Probably not him. And it's a nice white suit. And people that wear white are pure. Yeah, yeah. Do you know who else wore white? Jesus. Can't be him. And his dad wrote some really good books. <laughs> no, Helen. <laughs> Helen, who do you think wrote the Bible? Do you think God wrote the Bible about God? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought it was his biography. No, no Helen. <laughs> um... We'll say, shall we table that for, we'll table that for another day. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. So on the 13th of Feb, 1992, a warrant for his arrest was put out. He'd already, he was already suspicious that this might happen. So he fled to Miami with his girlfriend. But it didn't last long. He's finally tracked down to Florida in the United States because the authorities have begun to put various parts of the puzzle together. And... He's arrested and extradited in May 1992 to stand trial in Austria. 
When he talks to the television camera and he says, I've only had two years of freedom and he appears to be quite upset, we shouldn't be fooled by that. The only person that he feels sorry for is himself. And this is a skilled manipulator. This is somebody who's learned by observing the behavior of other people, what kind of emotions he can display that will elicit some kind of sympathy. During his time of extradition, Detective Ernst Geiger from the Vienna Police Department discovered further links to prove Jack's guilt. He had searched Jack's home and found evidence of his visit to LA. So he got in touch with the LA Police Department and was like, oh, so there were, like you said, there were three murders? We know someone that was in LA around that time who also has a history in murder. He's currently being extradited right now. Um, so the evidence found at Jack's home placed him in the areas of each crime scene. Da -da, big surprise. And Geiger expanded his search across Europe, asking if there were any other unresolved murders with the same MO. Uh, Prague police replied with the case of Blanka Bokova, the first woman he killed. So that was a lady in Prague. So the case was building. And finally, Jack was charged with the murders of 11 women. So in May 1992, Jack was extradited from the US to Austria, the minor celebrity and poster boy of prison reform was once again in police custody. It's not often that you get a killer who was that well known to a society. And in his case, it's very interesting to me that he killed, then he went to prison, then he came out early with a brand new profession and with an amazing chance of just carrying on with a brand new life, 10 times better than the life he had before. It just goes to show that the hate he had inside him towards women was so intense that nothing would stop him. His trial began on April 20th, 1994, at the courthouse in Graz. Many of his friends from Vienna still thought he was innocent. Because he was wearing white. But the prosecution had gathered strong evidence against him, which included, for the first time in an Austrian murder case, DNA evidence. Oh, things are moving. The event attracted lots of media attention. Journalist Paul Yvonne was in the courtroom that day. You had to register, which was something completely new back then having to register as a journalist in a public proceeding. This big group of his supporters, his fans, even the female ones, they were already nowhere to be seen or heard. Because during the long pre-trial process, many details had come to light which made it so clear he was as guilty as sin. Jack was defended by two lawyers during what was a very complicated and lengthy trial, and one of them was Graz-based Dr. Hans Jürgen Lee Hofer. Every single victim, every single murder had been examined. The whole thing took three months. With many of the victims, it was no longer possible to establish how the women died how they were murdered. Because sometimes only the skeleton was left as the bodies had been in the forest. They showed photographs of uh, the first woman he killed, Blanca. She was murdered in September 1999 Prague. And obviously, understandably, like they've got these horrific pictures of this woman um, who'd just been murdered on the riverbank. And everybody in the room was like, oh, God, it left a deep impression on everyone, as you can imagine, like, that's some deep stuff. But Jack apparently was completely unfazed. The judge then asked, are there any questions? And Unterweger tells me, quite excitedly, go on, ask him something, ask already. Obviously, he was not affected by the image of this naked girl the corpse and this person who was strangled, whose facial expressions are not pretty. He kept telling me to ask, ask, ask. I didn't know what to ask. I wasn't able to ask, but he didn't care. Go on, ask, ask, ask. 
So Jack clearly wants people to ask him about what he did. But he's proud of he's, it. As though, yeah, as though he's proud of it. The audacity of all of it. Like he desperately just wants to talk about himself and um, what he did and why he did it and how he did it. Unreal. Like, yeah, I did that. Do you want to know more? I, I, yeah. Are you proud of me? Terrible. Are you impressed? For two of the murders, the prosecution presented DNA evidence. So there was um, hair belonging to Blanca Bokova and that had been found in his car. And um, the red fibres found on another victim's body corresponded to fibres from his scarf that he had. And that was in his house. Now, when Jack had initially been asked by police about his whereabouts in Prague, unaware of possible DNA evidence, he answered that he'd been to the city, but he hadn't picked up anyone. If he had said, I met a girl there, took her to my car and we did things together, going for a ride, drinking a beer or something, then it would have been possible to explain why a girl's hair was in his car. But because he said, I never took a girl in my car in Prague, now the question was, how did Botskova's hair get into the car of Jack Unterweger? This practically sealed the chain of evidence. Yeah, because if he'd have put a spanner in the works and said, oh yeah, I just gave someone a lift, it could have thrown them off a bit. Yeah, well, it probably would have. They'd have probably been like, oh yeah, it couldn't have been you. Because they have to ask then, they have to investigate more, but because he's like lying and they know he's lying, because they know her hair was in his car, but he's lied about it, so... Why lie? Why, Why lie, Jack? Yeah. There's the evidence! Another key piece of evidence was Jack's M.O. He strangled his victims, always using the same kind of knot as previously mentioned. And Austrian police got in touch with the FBI in the US and asked if there was any way to analyse this specific knot. An American specialist had the answers they needed. Paul Yvonne explains the significance of these knots. Boa came to Graz for the trial of Jack Unterweger. She was asked for her opinion on the knots. She said, I tell you the same thing I told the Austrian investigators at the time. If you find the person who tied one of these knots, then you've undoubtedly found the one who tied all these knots. This is a very special knot. I can remember how this American woman had the original bra in her hand and showed it to the jury. You could see how tightly the neck was constricted by the knot. And I think that was the turning point in the process. That's when I could really notice it. One had to imagine that the victim's neck was compressed to this diameter. Paul says this was when the jury knew. That was a moment when it was dead quiet in the overcrowded courtroom, even though there were hundreds of people in there. And Jack Unterweger, who has always had such a particularly straight, present, slightly dominant posture, and who always looked with a certain, I would say, impudence, as if to say, look, I have nothing to hide. Dr. Lehofer says it was then the room turned against Jack. The horror of the jury when they saw this bra could really be felt physically. And that was also the turning point, when the mood turned against Unterweger. Everybody was looking at him like, it's 100% you, there's nothing else to hide now, and he knew that he had nothing to, that there was no way of getting out of this. So from being someone that was like an a, a arrogant, confident, socialite celeb, he just recoiled into this small, small man hunched over and the colour drained from him and he just sat there in silence. On June 28th, 1994, at approximately 9pm, the verdict was read out and he was found guilty of nine out of 11 murder charges against him and sentenced to life in prison again. Of course, he placed an appeal against the verdict. 
He then returned to his cell where six hours later he hanged himself from the string from his pants and his shoelaces and it was confirmed that the knot he used to tie the noose was the same he had used to strangle his victims. No. It's quite poetic really, but... Yeah, I feel like he got off lightly though, Yeah. And the two, the other two. It was like a fuck you, almost. It was like, you have all this evidence. You know this is the knot that I use and I'm going to kill myself before I have to go through prison again with this knot as like a, it was me. Yeah. Goodbye. That's the movie ending. That's the Kaiser Soze losing his limp. Yeah. So that was the story of Jack Untervega. Not a nice man. No. And I, I really do hope that they looked into their system the prison system a little bit more closely or perhaps put in more more precautions. You'd hope so. I like to think that they were very optimistic and I find it quite nice of them that they thought it was an optimistic, you know. But I think setting someone free with no probation or no curfews or checking in or all that, I think that that was a, just a step too far. Just check in. I feel like at least just check in. Just want to make sure you're not murdering. mm and I'll be like, oh, Soz, do you know what? Actually, I did start again. <laughs> it's really, I love it. Okay, right. I think in that case, we better just, let's not send you to LA to do some more murdering. Let's just, we'll just stick you, stick you back in here. Yeah? Mm, yeah, I agree. <laughs> Next time on Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson and me. Danny Howard. We'll be turning back the clock to dive into the world of the original, the original killer clown, John Wayne Gacy. I really don't want to do this. <laughs> make sure to subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark. And we would love it if you could leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of these themes in this episode, please do check out the description for lots of helpful resources. Special thanks to Woodcut Media and our wonderful producers at Audio Boom Studios. 